Hi everyone, welcome to episode 3 of the Obsangani Crit Care Podcast. Hi everyone, Roger Browning here again. Uh, this week's discussion is going to focus on life-threatening bronchospasm and how to use safe mechanical ventilation. Before we get into the guts of the topic, um, a shout out to the Intensive Podcast and IntensiveBlog.com, uh, which is run by some doctors from the Alfred uh, Intensive Care Unit in Melbourne, and a really great talk by David Tuxen on uh, on this topic. Um, I thoroughly recommend it. And the, there's a little bit of discussion in there, which is, which I found fascinating about the thunderstorm asthma ep- um, crisis they had in November last year in 2016 where there were 9,000 presentations over 24 hours and 9 deaths uh, in Victoria so really interesting really detailed discussion of the physiology and um, 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 interesting and uh, educational also a quick shout out to another website which I found useful um, putting this together called Deranged Physiology which is um, run by a bike called Alex Yatsev uh, who I believe is also an intensive care doctor over in Victoria. Okay, so I thought we would focus this discussion on one aspect of bronchospasm, which is safe mechanical ventilation. Anyone who's um, ever looked after a patient with severe bronchospasm and had to use mechanical ventilation on them will know that it's a pretty scary set of um, situation, and there's a few serious things that... Um, you can do wrong and cause some serious harm. So that's that's uh, the whole um, message behind this podcast is to revise that and perhaps give some tips to um, remind everyone how to do this safely. I'm not going to go into depth in the physiology, but basically most of you should know this, but um, yeah, this is relevant to how we do this safely, is um, understanding the major physio- pathophysiological change in asthma, which is that air can, or gas can get in, but it can't get out very easily. And so expiration is the, is the issue. Um, and the main thing you want to avoid where you can cause serious harm is call a condition known as dynamic hyperinflation. Um, I'll also do it called gas trapping or breath stacking. And basically what happens is the uh, ventilation is excessive and there's not enough time allowed for expiration. So after you give a breath, you before that breath has been fully expired, you're already giving the next breath. And this leads to a sort of staircase phenomenon where um, eventually the patient's chest becomes um, hyperinflated. Um, this can cause obviously trauma to the lungs, but the most um, serious complication is the cardiovascular compromise which can occur. Uh, the hyperinflated lungs it causes compression of the pulmonary circulation, meaning that blood can't flow through the pulmonary vessels and capillaries, leading to decreased cardiac output and then eventually cardiac arrest. And I also um, believe there is an element of actual uh, physical anatomical displacement of the heart by this, these hyperinflated lungs causing basically cardiac tamponade as well. So that's the situation that can occur. Obviously, uh, hyperinflate something too much, it can cause tension, pneumothorax and various other things too. Okay, so in order to sort of structure this uh, discussion, I have put together a, a little um, 
fictitious obstetric case, um, which you can read if you're on the website. In summary, a woman um, develops severe bronchospasm following an injection of intramuscular carboprost, um, which she receives because she has an atonic uterus and is having a postpartum hemorrhage. Uh, obviously, uh, there are varying degrees of bronchospasm. Hopefully, the patient is not compromised enough that you need to intubate them. And that is probably, I guess, one of the things that we should um, start off with is that you know, intubating and mechanically ventilating someone with bronchospasm is not a decision you should take lightly. Um, and this, for, because of all this serious um, uh, adverse events which could occur. This, in this fictitious case, I have made it pretty obvious that that's it's, um, required. You know, she basically becomes unresponsive and hypoxic despite um, despite your best efforts. So, how would you induce? First question I've got is how would you induce anesthesia? Don't want to spend too much time on that because um, I don't think that's where the where most of the money is in this talk. Um, if it's not immediately life-threatening and you've got time but you still think you're going to need to put them on a ventilator. Um, I guess the ideal induction agent would be ketamine uh, in that it is cardiovascularly stable and has some bronchodilation properties. If you push for time, the patient's literally stopping uh, arresting in front of you, then you may or may not have time to choose what drugs to use, but a bit of propofol is usually available, some sort of muscle relaxant if required. Once you get the tube into place, you know, how are you going to set up the ventilator and safely ventilate this woman? Now, I'm going to go through a sort of a list of um, key points that I think you should try and remember when setting up the ventilation. Um, it might not be easy to remember all these in a crisis, so I think the underlying principle that you need to remember is basically you want to um, have plenty of time for expiration. So whatever you set up, as long as you give the patient plenty of time to expire and you aim for really what is um, quite small minute ventilation and tidal volume, tidal volumes and respiratory rates so that you're not going to cause dynamic hyperinflation, you probably won't go wrong. However, let's go through the, um, you know, if you want to be an expert in this, the key things that you probably should try and remember. So um, the first thing I've got, I've written down is use volume control ventilation. So basically the principle is you're going to try and give plenty of time for expiration. That means you need to get the inspiration in relatively quickly. Um, and this is quite difficult if you're going to use pressure control ventilation in the, in the pressure control waveform. So you, or most people, um, experts in this area recommend volume control ventilation. You know, want to aim for a small tidal volume, five to seven mils per kilo. So that's in a, you know, in your uh, traditional 70 kilo average person, 350 to 500 mil tidal volumes. And you want a low respiratory rate. So they talk, and the authors, authors of most guidelines talk about 10 to 12 breaths per minute, but I would must admit that when I've had bronchospasm, I've aimed even lower than that. You know, better off to start lower, I think, and, uh, and then maybe titrate it up if you think it's safe. <coughs> and just tolerate a low minute ventilation. Don't worry about the CO2. Um, you're going to um, cause harm and or death by hyperventilating them, so don't worry about the CO2. It is going to climb. In order for a patient to tolerate um, this high CO2, you're going to need to, um, it's going to be a very strong drive in the CNS to breathe, so you're going to have to sedate and usually paralyze them, especially initially. So feel free to use those things liberally. Um, 
So once you've set all that up, you want to make sure, check on your ventilator, that you've got at least four seconds for each expiration. And you're going to need to adjust the IE ratios often to between one to three to one to four. Um, some ventilators you might be, uh, to, to change that, you might not have it that setting, you actually um, adjust the inspiratory flow rates. So turn the inspiratory flow rates up high. All of these things are going to lead to high peak inspiratory pressures because um, you're trying to give the breath in over a short period of time. So you're going to have to reset the alarms to allow this to occur. So you need you tolerate high peak inspiratory pressures. What you don't want are high peak plateau pressures, which is the actual pressure in the alveoli. And um, hopefully most of us um, will have some idea of how to measure that. It's easier on intensive care ventilators usually. There's a button you can push and it will measure that for you. But basically you have an inspiratory hold, so you hold the breath. At the end of expiration the breath is held for a second or two. And this allows you to measure the peak plateau pressure. Make sure that's less than 25 centimetres of water. Alright, um, finally, PEEP. Most people recommend no PEEP at all. Or if you are going to give some PEEP, only minimal amounts. Because basically with this um, dynamic hyperinflation that most asthmatics have, they have an, uh, a degree of intrinsic PEEP. And any external PEEP that you apply on with your ventilator settings are really basically just going to be uh, pushing the mean intrathoracic pressure up a little bit more. And obviously that's the thing you don't want to occur. Alright, so I didn't really go through what is dynam um, uh, the treatment of dynamic hyperinflation, but that comes up next. So as you can see in my um, fictitious case that we have here, I have described someone who's, um, you know, got um, caught up in the, after intubation, caught up in the um, uh, adrenaline rush that usually occurs in something like this, and the patient is hypoxic and they're trying to um, fix that, and in, in, inadvertently they have set the ventilator to quite a, quite a vigorous um, settings, 700 ml by 16 breaths per minute and a high peep. So number three, I've said after a few minutes suddenly the patient has no pulse. What has happened? What is the differential diagnosis and what are you going to do? So I think I've already explained that the thing you're really trying to avoid, and which has probably occurred in this situation, um, is dynamic hyperinflation. There's a few other things that it could be. It could be a tension pneumothorax or it could be um, you know, displacement of your airway and things. We'll go over that in a second. But what's the first thing you should probably do because it's highly likely that um, dynamic hyperinflation is the cause is what's known as an apnea test. So anyone who's on a ventilator because of bronchospasm, if you have cardiovascular compromise or collapse, the first thing you should do while you're trying to sort out everything else is disconnect them from the ventilator. And, uh, and even apply pressure to the manually to the chest to try and squeeze some air out. And you may have to do, or most people recommend doing this for at least 90 seconds, which seems like, which would in real life seem like an awfully long time if you've got a hypoxic, um, sick patient in front of you. <coughs> but basically what happens is the gas that has been trapped will, will come out, the pressure in the chest will fall, venous return will, will um, resume, and the, hopefully the... Um, PEA or electromechanical dissociation which has been occurring will resolve and the patient will have a pulse and a blood pressure. <coughs> and usually I have actually seen this when I worked in emergency medicine 20 years ago, well not quite that long ago, but before I did anaesthetics I did see someone get hyperventilated, a COPD patient, to the point where they, this did occur and um, someone much more senior and clever than me um, uh, you know, realised what was happening and did the apnea test and it worked the treat. So there you go. Okay, so what if you do the apnea test and 
things don't get better. Well, you've got to make sure you've got the diagnosis right. So, especially in less clear-cut cases, is this actually bronchospasm? You know, sometimes when you have um, problems with a patient on the ventilator and maybe they're a heavy smoker and asthmatic, you think straight away you just sort of jump to the conclusion that they've got bronchospasm. Don't forget, there are other things that can cause higher respiratory pressures and um, patient compromise. So check your machine, your circuit, the tube, make sure there's no problem, there's no biting of the tube, there's no kinking of the tube, there's no mucus plugs. Have a look in the mouth of a laryngoscope, they haven't coughed it out, the tube hasn't become displaced. Use a Disconnect the machine completely from the patient, maybe it's the machine problem. Check um, with a bag, ventilate them with a bag, um, manual ventilation device, see if it feels normal. Partial suction catheter or bronchoscope through the ETT. All of those things should help you make sure you're not missing something. <clears throat> what about tension pneumothorax? This is a difficult one, probably uh, something that you could devote a whole um, discussion to, so we can't really go into that, but certainly as, an, as a potential, um, if you've been um, ventilating a bronchospastic patient with high pressures, this is definitely something that could happen. Um, the correct management, um, I'm not sure that I know what that is. There are various options. You know, you, do you have time? Is a patient stable enough or that you can actually get some imaging to confirm it? Because blindly putting um, needles or cannulas into the chest if you're not sure of a diagnosis is um, probably fraught with danger. If you didn't, if they didn't have a pneumothorax beforehand, you're probably going to cause one. <clears throat> Obviously, you just put in a chest drain. That's not, probably not a bad thing to do, but it usually takes time to get hold of that equipment. <coughs> What about ultrasound? Is that really useful in a, in a, in a bronchospastic patient where the lungs not moving much anyway? Um, so those are all issues to think of. And even manual um, finger thoracostomy, you know, that's less uh, quick and easy to do, but I've never done it myself. So anyone got any comments there or experience or, um, or thoughts, that would be um, really, uh, really interested to hear them. And Okay, so... I think that's mainly what I wanted to discuss. I am going to briefly discuss, though, for a couple of minutes, bronchodilation and the fact that she's probably still bleeding because that's the reason she's in theatre. <coughs> so the mainstay of treatment, <coughs> excuse me, is going to be salbutamol <coughs> or, or beta-2 agonists. How are you going to give that? In my experience, when I've had a patient who's bronchospastic on a ventilator, I have just use the special connection device which comes with the uh, Ventolin um, canister and I extremely liberal spraying you know, at least 20 sprays of um, salbutamol into the circuit because most of it ends up on the tube um, I think that's the safest and the easiest way to administer a large amount of salbutamol to a patient a lot of it's not going to get into their lungs you may have to resort to some form of parenteral beta 2 agonist if you are familiar with and know how to give salbutamol if you have it available, I know maybe even um, tibutylene, if you work in an obstetric hospital that has that, you can give that intramuscularly or subcutaneously um, or intravenously. I personally must admit that we don't usually have it in, my, uh, in the place I work and um, it's certainly not in theatre, so if I had to give something parenterally, I might have to give a dose of intramuscular adrenaline or very small boluses of um, intravenous adrenaline, but I would only recommend doing that if you are familiar with it. Downside, obviously, with adrenaline is the alpha agonism and the hypertension that can occur. Um, oxygen, anticholinergic steroids, all of those things are useful to add. And certainly, if you are 
in theatre and you have a vaporizer, I would highly recommend giving a little bit of volatile of some sort because this is a potent bronchodilator. Not an option if you're using a transport ventilator or you're in intensive care where they don't have that um, as part of the circuit. <coughs> Other things that people have used, I'm not going to go into detail or discussion, include ketamine, magnesium, um, etc. And finally, if uh, nothing's working, you've, uh, you're at the end of your um, exhausted the end of your list of options to try and rescue this patient. If you're lucky enough to be in a hospital which has the ability to perform ECMO, there are definitely case reports of patients who have had good outcomes when they have had um, ECMO applied um, to rescue them from um, what is otherwise a dire situation. Um, right, so I think I've covered most of the things. Hopefully you find this useful either as revision, for, I know a lot of people know this already, or maybe picked up a few points like I did uh, when I was reading up for this. Um, I've, I've put it, I've talked about it in, specifically in an obstetric case, but basically any, any um, be useful in any situation where you have someone with bronchospasm, especially obviously I guess the scariest one is someone with a, a severe exacerbation of asthma. Um, but even um, I must admit some of the worst um, bronchospastic episodes I've had have been uh, unexpected anaphylaxis, um, which is also, um, so you need to use all the same principles. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it. Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.opsandbionquickcare.org where there will be lots of show notes and links to interesting videos related to the topic that you just listened to. See you again next time.